This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we absolutely have to update you on what is happening in the United States this week. I know it feels like it has just been a roller coaster up and down. What is going on with the politics down there? Well, we now know that former President Donald Trump did show up for questioning under oath in a case in New York. This is into his business practices. He showed up, but very quickly it was made clear that he wouldn't be answering any questions. He took the fifth. He invoked the Fifth Amendment, which is protection against self-incrimination. So what is going on here? It's hard to sort out all these kind of different situations and cases right now, so we're going to get some help with that. Linda Kenyon is with us, a CBS reporter in Washington. Linda, thank you for being here. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for asking. Now, could you please explain this particular case to us? I feel like people are getting all of these different cases, the Mar-a-Lago search, all of that confused. But what was this case involving? Yeah, this case uh, is involving the uh, financial dealings, the Trump businesses. The probe is led by the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James. And uh, she is investigating whether the uh, ex-president misled investors and tax authorities by first inflating the Trump organization's property values for the benefit of investors and investments, and then second, deflating those same values to win tax and loan benefits. And uh, as you can imagine, that is illegal. So that is the crux of the investigation, which is being led by Letitia James in New York State. As you rightly point out, it's one of several investigations, one of several stories involving the former Trump uh, president uh, and the Trump presidency. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have a lot of a lot of things swirling around. It is hard to kind of keep up, but we're doing our level best. I bet you are. Yes, I know. I feel like I myself am even answering questions from people who know I work in the business about, well, what about this case? And I think, well, no, no, these aren't <laughs> these aren't related. So just to to be clear on this one from New York, then this that's been a long time. It's been ongoing for quite some time, hasn't it? It has. And uh, for months and months, uh, the president has tried to, the former president, I should say, has tried to deflect, delay, uh, and outright end the uh, possibility that he would have to testify. And he's been fighting against this investigation. Uh, this time, however, his last court challenge, trying to block any further investigations and certainly trying to block his testimony, have failed. So he did show up for his deposition yesterday in New York, and it was a long one. It started at 9.30 in the morning. It ended at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And during that time, he, as you rightly point out, he invoked his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Now, here is a statement that he did release afterward. He said, and I'm going to quote here, I once asked, if you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Now I know the answer to that question. 
when your family, your company, and all the people in your orbit have become the targets of an unfounded, politically motivated witch hunt supported by lawyers, prosecutors, and the fake news media, you have no choice. So that is why he invoked the Fifth Amendment. Uh, I believe it was more than 100 times, and uh, he did not uh, cooperate other than showing up. Had he not shown up, there could have been a warrant out for his arrest, uh, as would happen with a lot of people who don't show up for their depositions or defy subpoenas. So he showed up, but he was not cooperative. Hmm. Okay, so that's that case. Now, do we know any more, Linda, at this point about what happened with this search at Mar-a-Lago? It seems like there's not a lot of information out about that at this point. Actually, we learned some very interesting information early this morning. Uh, Two senior government officials uh, spoke to Newsweek, and uh, they told Newsweek that a confidential source had tipped them off, had tipped off the FBI about not only what to search for in the raid on the former president's home, the uh, Mar-a-Lago Trump compound uh, and estate, and not only what to search for, but where to search for it. So this was some insider information. We don't know, obviously, who this insider was, uh, and we may never know. But uh, apparently the uh, FBI agents moved in uh, because the president was not turning over uh, information that was believed to be classified that was being stored at his compound. And uh, that information is by law supposed to be in the possession of the National Archives under the Presidential Records Act. Now, uh, the FBI and various investigative agencies have been trying to cull this information so that the National Archives can save it because the uh, National Archives is uh, the uh, arbiter of all presidential information because it becomes part of the nation's history and it belongs to the American people and is stored and saved by the archives. Well, if the president was not compliant or was not compliant fast enough or there was perhaps some concern that he might destroy some of the documents, which was cited earlier, uh, they had to move in and get this information. That's what the FBI has said. Uh, Apparently, uh, they got the information from not only uh, the the, storage room, but an office and a bedroom in the Trump uh, uh, residence. And uh, and they carried out many, many boxes of material. Mm-hmm. Now, why did they go in and do it this way? Uh, apparently, it was time to coincide when Trump was not at home, that he was not at his Florida home. He was either at his New Jersey golf course or his New York home. Instead, he turns out he was in New York at the time, and uh, he was at part in part of the time also in New York, in uh, I should say New Jersey for uh, some some golfing. And nonetheless, uh, it was supposed to be a quiet situation so that it would uh, be somewhat under the radar and uh, it would not become a media frenzy. But it has now famously backfired. And uh, there is an awful lot of outcry, especially among Trump's supporters, not only in the state of Florida, but around the country, and certainly among uh, Republicans uh, here in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. All right, more to come on that. Linda, thank you for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. All right, time for us to check in with our Raji Sohal this morning. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. I wanted to tell you about a little anecdote from last night. 
Uh, I did something which was uh, out of character for me oh. and my children, which was I took them to the playground after dinner. So it was kind of late and the temperature was just right. So we went to the playground. They were playing with this little girl. She was about two years old. Her name's Kira and she doesn't speak English, uh, which when you're kids, it does not matter. Cause oh no, it does not at all. <laughs> yeah. They just find an, a wonderful way to connect. And I got talking to her mom, Daria. Turns out that they are Ukrainians from Kiev and who have only been here a couple of months. And this to me was, you know, I have talked to many Ukrainians uh, since the war on Ukraine started five months ago, but I've talked to them uh, for work. And this was just a, a family that were refugees that I just happened to run into, um, which was really interesting to me. And, and their story is that basically when the war hit, they happened to have been on a, a holiday, a long holiday in Georgia. They didn't have the chance to return to Kiev. So they went to other cities in Europe before being accepted through a program to Canada. And they got to North Vancouver because they had a friend who had arrived a month prior to them and had found like a placement in a basement. So they live in that basement suite now. It's a one bedroom with uh, this friend. Um, and I should really say it was an acquaintance. It's just someone that they happen to, to know loosely through so many people. And uh, now... Yeah, Daria, Kira, Daria's husband, the three of them are living with this woman in a basement. Her husband's looking for work. Uh, they're very thankful for the help of the food bank because they have been shocked by how expensive life is here. And they speak very little English. They need to find a new apartment. They can't find one. They've been looking for another basement suite type of thing. Um, they're nervous to leave that area because they only have this one person that they know in Canada, in BC, and uh, that's the person that they're staying with. So it just really hit home for me that these refugees, you know, we talk about, oh, let's get them to Canada. Let's get them here. We just have to get them to safety, which is wonderful and which is like a pillar of what it is that Canada does and offers people in need. But then on the other side of that, I do wonder how much support is there for these kinds of folks. Yeah, that's the big question, right? Is that we want to do well, we want to help, but help how? And I, I wonder, you know, five months since the war has started, Roger, do you feel like is it still on people's radar? Are we starting to not think about it as much? Yes, I think that's definitely happened. And I think, uh, you know, with her limited English, Daria did tell me uh, that people she feels have moved on and only Ukrainians are thinking about it. Uh, this is a woman who thought she was going to go on vacation and then just go right back home and go right back to work. And then when the war started, she said it was extremely traumatic to watch this stuff unfold on television uh, and in the news. And she was expecting that, OK, after a week, it might end she's beside herself that it's still going on. She still hasn't been back home. Everyone she knows and loves in Kiev itself has dispersed to around the world and not all of them able to find community wherever they have gone. So I did get her information and I, I'm going to do my best to help her get in touch with some of the services I guess she's not aware of that exist. Uh, there is this uh, app, for example, that a lot of people are on and it's like a, it's called Nextdoor it's popular and it's a way for neighbors to help out somebody who uh, is a newcomer to the area. 
And so, uh, yeah, she wasn't aware of that. Mm. She wasn't aware of uh, different uh, ways that uh, the, Nor the city of North Vancouver was already organizing around initiatives. There there's a disconnect there. Yeah. And I'm not surprised. And you know what, Simi? We didn't have the most convivial uh, interaction. She was, in fact, even a little, I would say, suspicious of, like, why is well, this yeah. woman... Like trying to help me. Can you so imagine much? everything that she has <laughs> been through? That you would be a bit yeah. kind of apprehensive. You probably would have your guard up a little bit on that. Yes. Uh, so yeah. yeah, that's a good thing for all of us to think about. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at one hundred one point one FM HD two and on nine eighty CKNW. Well, look up over the next couple of days. You could be in for a treat. The Perseid meteor shower is going to be hitting its peak. So how can you see it? Is there anything different for this year? What makes this meteor shower so special? Oh, so many questions, right? Let's see if we can get the answer to those. Joining us now is Frédéric Baron, astrophysicist at the Université de Montréal. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. So tell me, what is so special about this meteor shower right now? Well, August means uh, warm weather, swimming, and shooting star. So the Perseid meteor shower is the one that we know the most because in August, we're all outside and we get to enjoy clear skies, hopefully tonight. We, I heard uh, maybe some clouds, but this is why we love the Perseid. We, we are outside, it's warm, we can look at the stars, and it's, uh, it's a very, very impressive uh, meteor shower that we all love. Okay, so it feels like summer. It feels like summer. Thursday, it's summer. It's August. It's like swimming in the lake and looking at shooting stars. <laughs> this sounds, you, you paint such a beautiful picture there. That sounds so visual. So <laughs> how often does this happen? And can you explain to us what is happening in the sky when we see this meteor shower? So this meteor shower happens every year uh, close to August. So the, the peak, so the moment when we can see the most uh, uh, meteors, the most shooting star, is about in these days. So usually August 11 to 13. But you can start to, sh to see meteor shower, uh, meteor shower from the, the, the Perseid mid-July until the end of August. So what happens is that, is that every year, as you know, the, the Earth is going around the sun. And every year, uh, the Earth passes through a spot in its orbit where the, the comet, the comet that is called 109P Swift Total, has passed. So it's an intermediate period comet, which means that it will cross the orbit of the Earth every 133 years. Last time was in 1992. Next time will be in, two, in, in 2026 and 2026. 20, so it's, uh, it's in a bit. But it means that every year we, we're just going through a cloud that this comet has left for us. So it's a cloud of little particles of dust. And this dust, when it goes into the atmosphere of the Earth, it will heat up. And this is what, this is what we see. It's not actually stars, even though we call them shooting stars. They look a bit like stars, but it's really only dust particles that is being heated up. And this is what we see and this is what we love to see and that, that we wish on. Oh, that is so beautiful. Okay, so as an astrophysicist then, Frederic, what is it that you are looking for? Are you going to be studying this? It's not really something that, you, that we study a lot. So it's, it's really just something that is a, you know, free, a, a free gift from, from nature that we can see. Uh, there is still some, some uh, interest about comets. So when the, the, the comet last crosses the orbit of the Earth in 1992, uh, astrophysicists were a bit surprised because it arrived a bit too early, a bit earlier than we had expected. And this comet does cross the orbit of the Earth. So could we have a collision with this, this comet? And with this, this arrival a bit early, uh, astrophysicists were worried that in maybe a few hundred years, 
there would be a collision between the comet and, uh, and, and the Earth. But looking back at the previous observation, they were able to see that, uh, no, <laughs> there's no risk, at least not until for a thousand years, uh, for this comet to uh, come into co- collision with the Earth. And that would be quite bad because this comet is about the size of the asteroid uh, that is well known uh, for having uh, disrupted the environment of the dinosaurs. So uh, that, that, that would not be a good thing. So we still we study comets like uh, the, the Swift at all, but for, for now, uh, uh, we're all fine. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> but that just demonstrates, I think, how fascinating your job is, because it sounds like it's, you're always learning something new. There's always something changing or something new about what is out there. Even in the solar system, because when we think about the solar system, we think that there's the sun, uh, the, the, the star, and eight planets. But there's so much more. So there are comets like, like Swift Atolls, but there are also asteroids. They're full of small and tiny objects that we don't know, that we're still learning, that we're still getting to study with the biggest and newest telescope. So it's, it's, it's very exciting uh, as a field of study. So any advice for people then if they would like to see this coming up in the next day or two? So first thing would be to find a dark site. So if you live in a big city, it's going to be a bit more hard to observe uh, shooting stars because of light pollution. So if you, if you can go away uh, of, of, uh, of the city or maybe just in a park where there's less light pollution, that, that, would, be, that would be good. Also this year, there's uh, something that it's a bit hard to do something about. There will be the moon. So it's going to be a full moon in the next few days. And the moon is very bright. So when you look close to the moon, it's going to be harder to see a shooting star. So I would advise to observe north. So to have the moon on your, in your back so that you see a, a patch of sky that is less affected by the bright moon. And then, please be patient. It takes about half an hour for your eyes to, um, to be able to see the things that are not as bright. So it takes some time for your eyes to uh, get used to the darkness. A good 30 minutes, and then you'll be able to see a shooting star that I'm fairly sure of it. Oh, and also, no clouds. We need to have no clouds. So let's go for a, a good forecast of weather. That is excellent advice, because getting your eyes adjusted, I, you know, nobody's ever mentioned that to me before, because I feel like people are probably impatient, right? They're going to go outside, and they, they don't see anything, and they think, ah, oh, forget it, there's nothing there. But we just have to wait a little while longer. Exactly. So, you know, to find a, a spot where we can just lie on the ground, look up, uh, north, so not in the direction of, of the moon, and take your time. It's it's pretty. It's it's free. It's there. It's a it's a gift that nature is giving us. Well, you have Let's convinced me. Time. I am going to do that. Thank you so <laughs> awesome. much for your time this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Frederic Baron, astrophysicist at the Université de Montréal, talking about the Perseid meteor shower, uh, which August 11th to the 13th, so today and over the next couple of days, will reach its peak. So you can check it out. But excellent advice given there. Put the full moon to your back because the moon will be bright if there is clear sky, which we should get at some point over the next couple of nights. And make sure your eyes adjust to the darkness and find something away from as much light as possible if you can. And it sounds like you'll be in for a treat if you are able to do that. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW.
So this week we have been discussing this idea of pharmacists being able to write a prescription or renew a prescription for chronic medication. The idea being this would perhaps lessen the load on family doctors, lessen the stress and anxiety that many patients feel, particularly seniors, if they can't get an appointment or they don't have a family doctor and they really need to get these chronic conditions taken care of. So this idea has been talked about a lot on social media, but we thought, well, how do pharmacists feel about this? Let's find out now. Annette Robinson is with us, past president of the BC Pharmacy Association. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So what do you think about this idea? I think it's a long time coming. Uh, BCPHA has had many conversations over the years with this government and and previous governments, obviously, about the ability for pharmacists to prescribe for minor ailments like cold sores, uncomplicated urinary tract infections, diaper rash, and perhaps also chronic conditions. So if now isn't the time, when is it? Our system is overloaded. Pharmacists are the medication experts. Uh, We know our patients very well. We have access to labs. We have access to their medications, and uh, we are able to assist and uh, prescribe medications if our regulatory system would allow us. Are other provinces doing this? Like, are there places where you can get this done? Yes, and uh, one of the the big items, I'm also uh, vice chair of the Canadian Pharmacy Association, and what we would really like to see is a harmonized scope. So scope where... You, you have the same service in BC as you would in Alberta, Quebec, Nova Scotia, wherever you go. So our colleagues in Alberta, they can adapt prescriptions and prescribe in an emergency, much like we can here. And they can also prescribe for minor ailments, much like I mentioned earlier, the uncomplicated urinary tract infections, cold sores. They can access and interpret labs. But one thing that they can also do is if they have the advanced prescribing authority, they can initiate prescriptions and prescribe for chronic conditions to manage ongoing therapy. Right. So do they have the discretion then they would have to say, you know, they'd have to ask some questions, I guess, Annette, at the counter there to make sure that this person shouldn't be seeing a family doctor. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're not going to diagnose and in, in no way are we going to replace the role of the physician. And remember, uh, pharmacists, Every time we fill a prescription, we look at the patient as the center of our care. We look at the drug-drug interactions. We look at food-drug interactions, allergies, disease states, and drug interaction. Also, if this is an appropriate dose. So it's something that we do every day on the prescriptions that we fill now and certainly would be something that we would continue to do if we were able to be, let's say, a primary care hub and fill prescriptions for chronic disease. Right. You mentioned that this is something you've had the conversation with several governments, not just this one, I'm sure previous governments too. So where are those discussions at, Annette? Has it come up recently? Yes, it's, it's been a continued conversation. I know uh, BCPHA has uh, meetings with the ministry um, on a very frequent basis, and I do know that this is a topic of conversation What makes BC unique is its um, prescribing is written into our Health um, Act. And so there's a little bit more work. So we need a little uh, time to to get that changed. But certainly, uh, if the will's there, we can get it done. 
would this require more training for pharmacists? Pharmacists have the training that we require right now. However, I would say that we would never want to practice outside of our competency. So some pharmacists may need to be more comfortable with prescribing for, let's say, diabetic medications. Uh, but there are some that are already that uh, certified diabetes educators who would be very um, comfortable doing that. So, yes, yeah, some pharmacists may need additional uh, training and some would be ready to go right away. Right. I guess I'm wondering then, like the relationship I think that people have with their pharmacists, if they, if they are getting medications, if they have chronic medications, they probably have a regular pharmacy that they go to, right? Yes. And, and that it's very important that uh, you do have a professional relationship with your pharmacists and get to know, um, you know, where they're located, their hours, of course, and um, have that trust and, and build that trust so that when it comes time, for your medications to be dispensed um, and to be, let's hope, in the future prescribed, um, there's a, a comfort there. Right. And that can, can pharmacists right now, can they renew prescriptions? And what are the limitations of that? Yeah. Um, in, in BC, we have two practice policies right now. And so we can renew a prescription However, there are some restrictions on that. Um, all prescriptions have an expiry date of one year from the date that they're written. Uh, one exception is a birth control pill or oral contraceptive, which is two years. Uh, so if there is um, t- time or life left on your prescription, we can renew it. But if it's been one year, then we cannot do anything else. We cannot initiate a new prescription. The only other practice policy that we have would be emergency supply for continuity of care. But this isn't intended to continue the life of a prescription. It's intended to be a short supply or a small supply to get you in until you can see your physician for a new prescription. Right. Okay. So then when you, did you, you heard the, obviously the story about the couple in Vancouver Island who put the ad in the paper, they were so desperate to get their prescriptions renewed. What did you think when you heard that? Oh, um, just very sad and, um, you know, worried that where our, our system is at this point as everyone else is. And I, I know the government is, is working extremely hard to try to alleviate the stress on the system and to fix what's broken. However, uh, if pharmacists were able to prescribe for ma- minor ailments, my thoughts are that this would alleviate some of the stress off of the doctors so that they would be able to fit in these patients who have a more complex care needs um, and, and more prescriptions. It almost feels like, Annette, what we're talking about here is we need to put more nuance into the system, right? Where you don't need to go to a doctor for everything. We need to also be able to judge when it's appropriate to go to the doctor. Absolutely. And pharmacists can do an assessment and we can also refer when we feel that uh, we cannot take care of what uh, is in front of us. So certainly there's a lot of nuances and um, it's time for change. And, And if not now, when? That's a good point, too. So do you expect or perhaps anticipate some changes on this front in the next couple of months? My hope is that uh, there will be some changes. Uh, Change is hard and and it takes time, but certainly is something that we can do. 
All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you for having me. That's Annette Robinson, past president of the BC Pharmacy Association. They are ready, they are willing, and they are able, it sounds like, to take on some of these tasks that are being talked about, even prescribing Uh, you know, a medication, getting a prescription from your pharmacist instead of your doctor for some minor conditions. They do this next door in Alberta. They do this in a few other provinces. Should we be able to do that here? Would you be comfortable with that, I guess, is a good question too. So, you know, um, Annette there listed a few things, diaper rash, acne, UTIs, cold sores, going to your pharmacist and saying, I think I need a prescription for this rather than visiting your doctor. That's a mind shift that even patients have to make, right? We are used to saying, oh, I should probably go talk to my doctor about this. But are you comfortable with saying, you know what? I'm going to go talk to my pharmacist about this. Would you be willing to make that change? This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Everybody's hiring, right? It's a great labor market out there. Well, not in every industry, it turns out. Vancouver-based social media company announced this week, Hootsuite, that it's going to lay off 30% of its employees. There is for sure an employment downturn in the tech sector. Employees at all levels are losing their jobs. So what is going on? For more on this, I'm joined now by our Raji Sohal. Hi, Raji. Hey, Simi. Yeah, tech is such a unique sector, right? It's been operating with this supreme level of optimism that's attracted billions of dollars from investors. And so what are the investors drawn to? They're drawn to ideas, right? They hope that the next big thing in apps uh, is what they're making. They hope that everybody absolutely needs it, that it'll be indispensable. And so because innovation is the name of the game in tech, so many companies are risking money on this wild idea that they come up with, hoping it might work. Sometimes it does, uh, but there are a lot of businesses that have no business being in business, as they say. And their core product or service in the tech world could seem like it has legs for the long run, but then turns out uh, after time that, oh, well, people maybe aren't necessarily going to need this service forever. So take, for example, Shopify, right? They had that huge boom during the pandemic, and it seemed like all shopping was going online forever, but then supply chain issues got in the way. And then so did consumer behavior trends around inflation, uh, rising interest rates. So they just let go of hundreds of employees. And now Hootsuite, as you mentioned, this Vancouver company, is letting go of 400 employees. They just announced that yesterday. So I talked to Ethan. He had a director role at a Vancouver venture capital company that very suddenly just folded. It folded this week. And they had a portfolio of over $1 billion. So what that company has done is let people go just like very suddenly, but they have told them, okay, look, we're going to help you out, give you a couple of months pay till you find your next gig, hopefully. And Ethan told me that from talking to his uh, fellow coworkers that also lost their jobs, people aren't really that worried about having lost them. They're they're optimistic still (laughs) being in tech that they're going to find something else. And Ethan says tech jobs being lost by the thousands across the country is just par for the course. He told me that that constant flow of free money to create something is just, it's not sustainable. There was sort of a, you know, expectation that this sort of boom was never going to end. Um, But I think that's pretty typical in tech. These are just part of the cycles where essentially there's just a, you know, a huge run and then (laughs) 
some of those ventures just inevitably don't work. Like the cream of the crop, you know, kind of floats to the top and then um, the cycle kind of moves on from there. Really, we're just kind of at the bottom of of kind of the cycle we've seen for, you know, the past 30 years or so. And then as an employee who's just lost their job, uh, <laughs> where does that leave you feeling? Yeah, it's obviously, you know, a scary moment, but, you know, it is part of the expectation when you work in, you know, startups or in, in venture funded um, businesses, you know, part of the expectation is that, you know, this may not work. It's like there is a high risk, high reward element to it. So it's kind of part of it. And you just have to kind of accept what, you know, when the, the ventures don't work, you have to kind of accept them and move on. I think right now is probably going to be a more difficult you know, time to find a role, um, you know, compared to six months ago, where, you know, the employees were really in the driver's seat. Um, you know, so I think there's going to be a, like a bit of a challenging time right now, just considering that there's, you know, hiring freezes across the board, a lot of layoffs across the board. It's not to say there won't be businesses that are still thriving. And some of these, you know, startups that are are still in growth mode. Um, but, you know, it's going to be a little bit more difficult than it was a few months ago. It's interesting to see, Simi, how quickly things changed from just several months ago uh, when people thought tech was doing great still. I also talked to Josh O'Kane. He's a tech reporter with Globe and Mail. Many of these layoffs are the result of optimism. You know, we're, we're coming off more than a decade of money pouring into ideas that showed relentless optimism that technology could change the world. The biggest companies in the world were all tech companies in the last decade, you know, became valued at a trillion dollars or more. Now, the problem with all this optimism was that far too frequently, people expected growth to just keep happening. Companies would grow, revenue would grow, then it wouldn't stop. But the thing about the world, though, is that there are limits. Um, I think a really sort of good example of this is Shopify. Uh, in investors made it Canada's most valuable company in the early stages of the pandemic. Now it's just announced it would lay off a thousand people. Now, why is that? The company admitted it had assumed that this major shift to online shopping from the pandemic would just, you know, be what they expected it to be 10 years from now, to just keep growing at this sort of wild pace. But it didn't grow at a wild pace. So the company was hiring for a future that didn't happen. And as a result, those rising interest rate, it's just it's more expensive to borrow money. And over time, the people who are lending the money are explaining this to the investors and to the startups. And, you know, as each interest rate increase every month or two comes up, that money is getting more and more expensive. And it seems to be um, that, you know, the consequences of maybe we're not going to get another, you know, 30 million dollar financing round or line of credit. Uh, in the next six months. And maybe we now need to think, okay, well, the money we got a year ago that was supposed to last us till 2024, maybe we need to make it last until 2023 or, or sorry, 2027. Yeah, this does not surprise me, Raji. It does feel like a lot of these companies hired quite enthusiastically yes. and they're now realizing that, oh, maybe we don't need all of these people. Yeah. And what was interesting is I learned that people were losing their positions uh, all over the place, uh, not just programmers, uh, not just people at the bottom or the middle, but a, a lot of leadership positions too. So what's happening now that, I mean, I guess you could say this is the one upside of all of these uh, layoffs is that some of these companies are learning to work with bare bones and to work more efficiently and to watch their accounting better. But 
Hootsuite, Wealthsimple, uh, Article, just all, you know, so many investors were pouring huge money into them with the hope that they were going to just really take off forever. Um, and it just, it hasn't been able to hold. Also, we don't know what's going to continue to happen with our interest rate, how much more it could increase, when those increases will come. All that's going to make it more expensive to borrow money and uh, keep in mind inflation, right? Yeah. One thing also to keep in mind, Simi, is that these jobs did pay very well and maybe some say a little too well. So I, just, I was talking to a couple of people and looked at people's LinkedIn profiles and stuff where they were talking about having lost their jobs. And they were some people were admitting that they made $100,000 at a previous position. And then suddenly in these roles at these uh, tech companies were making, you know, 40 to 60% more. Wow, that's crazy. I also find yeah. it interesting that a lot of these companies, I think they they placed a bet that didn't work out. Uh, to assume that the shopping habits of the pandemic were going to continue when people kind of went back to their normal lives, I mean, that that was risky. And they hired based on that. Yeah, risk is the name of the game, though, in tech innovation. If you don't risk, you have no chance of ever seeing if you will fly. And as one of the people that I interviewed mentioned uh, to me, some of these companies do take off. For some of them, the, the yeah, risk uh, was worth it. But for most, it's not. No, it is not. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. So interesting. That is our Raji Sohal talking about oh, the boom and bust kind of situation in the tech industry. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 ZKNW. Well, I heard a little bit of thunder yesterday while I was outside doing some work. And I know there has been a lot of talk about lightning strikes and the impact that's having, particularly on Vancouver Island. So what can we expect? Is this kind of unstable weather going to continue? Well, joining us now is Bobby Seiko, Environment Canada meteorologist. Bobby, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. My pleasure. Is this the kind of typical weather we see at this time of year? We always think about towards the end of August, these thunderstorms rolling in. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's something that we do see every year that, you know, in addition to the hot, dry weather that we normally see in the summers, we can also get some of these unsettled days where, you know, we see some thunderstorms developing as well. Okay, so then what's happening right now? Are the thunderstorms gone? What's happening in the next 24 hours or so? Actually, we've got thunderstorms going right now in the interior of BC. And, uh, you know, we had thunderstorms going from yesterday afternoon all the way through the night and into this morning as well. So right now they're mostly centered over the central interior, kind of uh, in the Caribou, uh, kind of West Columbia, that kind of region. But uh, we're expecting quite widespread chance of uh, uh, widespread risk of severe thunderstorms even uh, in many parts of the interior today. So that just means lightning strikes. That's not necessarily good news, right? Because fires get started that way. Yeah, you know, there's going to be a few hazards associated with that. Obviously, the lightning, that's uh, that's not a good situation considering especially how dry things have been. But in addition to that, we're expecting there could be a potential for large hail, heavy downpours and strong wind gusts. Oh boy. Okay. So that doesn't sound good. What area specifically are we talking about here? Well, we're going to be looking to uh, issue severe thunderstorm watches uh, later this morning once we kind of nail down the areas. But in general, it's looking like kind of the southwest interior, parts of the Kootenays, up to the Caribou and Central Interior. Um, so those are kind of some of the main areas that we're looking at for potential for that uh, severe thunderstorm threat. Okay, and this is a big storm system, isn't it? Because it was kind of moving its way across, like from Vancouver Island. 
Yeah, so we, we kind of have this um, upper low system that's uh, kind of centered just offshore right now. And then it's uh, it's bringing up some southerly uh, subtropical flow uh, from the states. And that's always a dangerous setup for, for BC because it brings that kind of moist, unstable air up and, you know, Obviously, with like the heat we've seen over the past week or so, uh, you know, now things are destabilizing combined with that moisture. That's quite the perfect setup for getting thunderstorms. Okay, so that's obviously a very big concern for watching the wildfire situation there. But here in Metro Vancouver, Bobby, then looking at the long term forecast, are we still going to continue to see some summer weather? Yeah, you know, uh, we we actually will see a return back to summer weather. Um, this weekend, a ridge of high pressure will be building in for next week, and uh, we're going to see temperatures climbing next week as well. So wouldn't be surprised to see inland temperatures by midweek get to the mid to high 20s, maybe even low 30s. Oh, what? Again? Okay, I thought we were, I thought we were moving out of this stuff then. So this is the typical pattern. What, what has the summer been like overall? I know we had a slow start to it, but are we seeing anything abnormal happen with our temperatures these days? Well, you know, it certainly was a slow start to summer, as you know, and it really didn't start get uh, to get going until you know partway through July, and and you know we've we've had a, a couple of hot spells already, and and you know having kind of two to three hot spells per summer isn't uh, out of the ordinary, really, but um, but obviously we know what kind of effects we saw from it last year, and you know we've been extra cautious this year to try and prevent any any of those heat related illnesses. Right. I know. That's a concern then. So it's not going to get that hot, though. Are we staying fairly seasonal for the next little while? Yeah, for the next few days here in Metro Vancouver, it's going to be fairly seasonal, I would say. Um, You know, next week, like I said, we will get a boost in temperature, especially inland where we could get into the low 30s. But, you know, as we get further into August, we start to see those longer nights and more cooling overnight. So a little bit more reprieve overnight than we would earlier in the summer. So that's, that's a good thing in, in, in a sense of recovering a little bit on the cooler temperatures overnight. So um, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll just have to see what the details look like. That is a relief. The cooler nights, I can handle that as long as it's hot during the day. Okay, but these thunderstorms, these this is still a concern though in other parts of the province then. So people should be aware of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mentioned, you know, the possibility of large hail downpours and um, uh, lightning and also wind gusts. These are not only not uh, great news for the wildfire situation, but also, you know, uh, heavy downpours can cause, uh, you know, mudslides, landslides. We saw a bit of that on Highway 1 um, last night. So, you know, just something to be cautious of. If there are heavy downpours, there could be that uh, kind of uh, unstable um, uh, slope potential. All right. Always something to be worried about. All right, Bobby, thank you. All right. You're most welcome and uh, stay safe out there.